Hello, and welcome to this month's Fraud Talk podcast. I am Mandy Moody, the media manager here at the ACFE. And today I am excited to talk to my colleague, Laura Himes. Hello, Laura. Hey, Mandy. And I thought this month we would dive into a couple of cases from our bribery and corruption casebook. The ACFE has put out many of these over the years, mainly because we know the value that you listeners place on cases and real case studies and stories that you can learn from and use in your own investigations. So Laura and I are going to talk about two today that really capture the fraud triangle, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in our new community we have online, our new ACFE community, there's been a lot of talk and we see this come up every so often, does the fraud triangle still work? Is it still applicable? Do we still need it? Has it changed? And we seem to always come back to, yeah, it's it's Definitely. it's still relevant. It yes. still works. So I wanted to take these two cases about two hardworking guys that you kind of wouldn't expect it would be your coworker or somebody you've met or a relative mm-hmm. that just gets in these situations where those legs of the triangle really match up and you see him cross the line. Laura, you've edited several casebooks over the years with Dr. Wells, our founder. Where did the idea to create the casebooks come from and why do you think we've continued to create them? The idea originated with Dr. Wells himself years ago, at least over a decade ago, I'd say by now. He had the idea that we have such an intelligent um, wealth of members at the ACFE and they have much more day-to-day hands-on experience investigating and conducting cases into fraud. So he's like, why aren't we collecting some of their stories and letting them teach their peers um, things that they've learned from cases? So he worked on the original fraud casebook, pulled together dozens of cases from CFEs, And it was a huge hit. People loved it. It's a very relatable way for CFEs to learn about the profession, to learn some tips for conducting cases. It's been a very popular way for our members to learn. So after the success of the first one, we started doing more targeted topics. We've done a casebook on computer fraud. We've done one on internet fraud, um, the bribery and corruption one that we're going to talk about today. We have also done insurance fraud. So they all kind of spawn from that original general fraud casebook. Today, just like you mentioned, we're going to talk about two cases in the bribery and corruption casebook. Mm-hmm. Both of these men that we'll talk about that crossed the line sounded like someone you would meet professionally, you'd meet mm-hmm. at a conference. They were hardworking. They had families. Definitely. They were both on the track to move up. You know, they were kind of um, in the middle. Uh They weren't at the top. They weren't at the bottom, but they were in the middle. They weren't super flashy. Mm -mm. They weren't super greedy, but they had some pressure. They saw an opportunity. They took advantage of it, and then they kind of rationalized what they did. So let's take a look at the first case. Give me a synopsis of this and how the small-time Coke bus led to uncovering a corrupt executive and a guy who was just trying to help out his uncle – who was previously, you know, the star detective and got injured on the job. And he kind of got disgruntled because he was stuck working in an evidence room at the police station. So tell me how this all got started. Yeah, this case was really fascinating because it started 
small and in a direction that you wouldn't expect. So the investigator and the author of the case was involved in an arrest of a local drug dealer. And he was known to local authorities. He was kind of one of the the kingpins of the drug scene in this town. And he, I think his girlfriend had just had a baby and he was inclined to cooperate with the police because of this. He didn't want to go to jail. He'd been to jail before. And so when he was arrested this time for dealing cocaine, he just started talking. Mm -hmm. And he was willing to give up any connections he had. And one of the names that came up was Peter Gentz, who was um, not on anybody's radar. But this drug dealer said that Peter was kind of new on the scene and a new cocaine dealer to the local market. Mm -hmm. And so the investigator followed up and started looking into Peter. And Peter was just like your as average Joe as you can get. He was a family man. He worked for a carpet business and he started straight out of high school laying carpet and just slowly moved up and was supervising a team of carpet layers. Very trusted at work, just an all around great guy. Um, like you said, just the kind of guy you would just meet in your daily life. Mm -hmm. And so the investigator started looking into him and Yes, it turns out that he had recently started getting shipments of cocaine, but because he's a carpet layer, he doesn't really know how to <laughs> get the drugs out on the street. He reached out to the arrested drug dealer, the original cocaine dealer, to to help him get his product out on the street. And then from there, the investigators found out they spoke to Peter and it didn't take him long to crack because he's not used to this sort mm -hmm. of thing. So he told investigators that he was only trying to help out his uncle who lived in another state. Peter was in uh, Pennsylvania. His uncle was in Florida. And his uncle was a police officer, had been with the police for 20 years, I think. And he was injured on the job in a motorcycle accident and disabled. Mm -hmm. So he went from like moving up the police ladder mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden he's stuck in an evidence room behind a cage, just filling out paperwork all day, every day. And he saw his career potential pretty much stifled. He also had a gambling problem. Mm -hmm. So these factors kind of compounded over the years. Um, Fred was his name, the police officer. And Fred started becoming more and more disgruntled with his job, and then decided if he's not going to advance career-wise through the police station, he would pad his retirement and start increasing his earnings mm -hmm. by stealing cocaine from the evidence room. The police would confiscate cocaine when they would bust criminals, and then it was Fred's job to dispose of the cocaine um, but rather than doing that, he started just taking it mm -hmm. and driving it up to Pennsylvania to his nephew and asking his nephew to sell it on the street for him and send some of the money back. And another layer of this case where it gets even more interesting is Fred was able to steal the cocaine because he had formed a relationship with this man named Marvin. And Marvin was an executive at a local hospital. Mm -hmm. And initially, Marvin was the one who was in charge of actually destroying the cocaine in a medically sound way. He mm -hmm. was the approved vendor for the police station. So Fred would take cocaine to Marvin and Marvin would destroy it. Um, it worked that way for years. But Fred and Marvin 
also knew each other from the local casinos mm. because they both had gambling problems. And um, they were both facing financial losses because of their gambling problems. So one night at the casino, they kind of struck up a deal. Fred said, well, what if one day I bring you cocaine that we need to destroy? You fill out the paperwork that says we destroyed it, but I keep it. And then we can split some of the profits. Mm. And Marvin was like, well, <laughs> Sounds sure. <good. laughs> Sounds like a good way to work myself out of my gambling debt. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it all started. Kind of convoluted, but also when you think about it, just really basic scheme for, yeah. for somebody who has access to all this cocaine and very little oversight. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just kind of spiraled from there. So you just said very little oversight. That was – that's yes. probably my first question here. So <laughs> – you know, as you were talking, a lot of red flags kind of popped up. And I'm yes. sure for anybody reading this case. So let's start with some of the red flags. Uh -huh. So let's start with Fred. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think Fred definitely has the most obvious red flags for anyone looking at it on the surface. He was doing well in his position. He kept advancing. And then, boom, this accident happens. And he is taken off the street. He's not investigating crimes anymore. His whole career path has changed, and he's not happy about it, obviously. And he's stuck. He doesn't have any way to move up. He's not going to get salary raises mm -hmm. anymore. So he is feeling very stifled. And from the case, it sounded like there were some outward signs that mm -hmm. he was disgruntled as well. So that should have been a red flag. But also, he was pretty much the only one in the evidence cage. And yeah, he was the only one seeing anything and approving everything. Exactly. Yeah. And everything that would come in, he would sign off on the paperwork. He was the one in charge of the um, chain of command for it all. Nobody followed up with him. So, so a lot of trust access. with a disgruntled employee. Yes, definitely <laughs> a lot of trust. With Marvin. Uh huh. Some of those red flags, something we haven't yet discussed is that the hospital was seemingly doing very well. Yes. In a time mm -hmm. where it probably shouldn't have been. Kind of tell me some more about those red flags. Yeah, we, that's right. We haven't even talked about that. The hospital was flourishing while all of its competitors were suffering. There were budget constraints uh, there was less government funding. Just across the board, a lot of issues that were causing competitors to not do well, whereas mm -hmm. Marvin's clinic seemed to have no issues whatsoever. Mm -hmm. As the investigators looked into it more, Marvin was actually soliciting kickbacks from vendors of the hospital. Mm. And he was using the money from the kickbacks, some of it for his own personal gambling problems, mm -hmm. but a lot of it to – inflate his clinic's financials and to mm -hmm. keep it afloat and to keep it looking like it was doing well when in fact it wasn't. It was mm -hmm. it was coming from bribes. And it also seems like Marvin was kind of the key owner of the process of getting rid of cocaine. The cocaine, yes. Yeah. And with yes. no oversight on that as yeah. well. Like who Who's making sure it's really getting destroyed? Yeah, exactly. It was just Fred and Marvin, mm -hmm. and everyone took their word. The police took Fred's word, the hospital staff, mm -hmm. because Marvin was uh, – he was a pretty high-up executive there. So, yeah, neither one of them had oversight, so it made it very easy for them to manipulate the process. Yeah, and so they mentioned that Fred's nephew, mm -hmm. Peter. Um, Peter, I mean, just – 
really just talked immediately. Yes. Because <laughs> he really didn't know. <laughs> he was definitely yeah. in over his head. Yeah. yeah. And so his – you know, rationalization was, you know, I was just trying to help out my... My uncle. My uncle. Yeah. Which is kind of a big leap to take, you yeah. know, to help out your uncle. Um, to start selling cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Definitely. So, you know, at play, I guess, was the loyalty to his family and maybe he mm-hmm. was in a really bad place. I think he knew about his uncle's gambling problems. Yes. Yeah, I believe um, he did. With all of these cases in the case books, you mm-hmm. know, we always end with kind of the lessons learned. Yeah. You know, what do you think were some of the big lessons learned here? With this one, definitely don't prejudge a case. If an investigator had gotten this case and thought, okay, it's just a local drug case, and they didn't dig deeply, the bribery at Marvin's Clinic never would have come up. The bigger dollar frauds never would have surfaced. And it might not have even gone down to Florida at all to Fred Mm -hmm. if they had just arrested Peter and left it at that. Yeah. So firstly, never ever think, oh, okay, here's a a limited scope of a case. Always follow through with where the trail leads you. But then also back to the fraud triangle, there were some opportunities that were um, not addressed at the police station and at the hospital, mm-hmm. there were not controls in place to prevent this. And looking for people's motives, recognizing when employees might be having some personal issues mm-hmm. that could possibly motivate them to commit a fraud. Mm-hmm. I think there were very clear red flags in this one that that nobody saw. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to the next case. Mm-hmm. We've got a construction worker who ends up stealing from the housing company he works for uh-huh. because he kind of gets in over his head by trying to start his own business. Yep. So how did this case unfold? So this case was pretty cut and dry in terms of um, the investigation standpoint. It was discovered by an internal auditor. And she was looking into budgets and costs for various housing projects and noticed that this one employee, Billy Dodd, who was a site supervisor for the company, his actual costs came in significantly higher than all the other site supervisors and significantly higher than budgeted estimates. Mm -hmm. And so she started looking into it a little more and discovered that it was, um, like you said, an individual who got a little over his head by trying to start a side business. So who was she hired by? She worked internally for the housing company. Okay, the housing company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, background on Billy Dodd, like Peter Gens in the first case, he was family man, hard worker, well-liked at his companies. And he always wanted to start his own company because mm-hmm. he worked long hours. He worked very hard for all of his employers. And he thought, I could do this better. Mm-hmm. I can have my own company. And um, he just never really had the capital to get it going. So he was working at a home builder called Bonfield Homes. And he was a site supervisor there, so he would oversee all of the construction of new homes. And he decided, this was as good a time as any. I'll start my side business now, and I'll just do it on the weekends and Mm -hmm. evenings when I can. So he got two partners, one of whom worked at a key lumber supplier in the Mm -hmm. area, and another who was a businessman with a lot of experience in construction. 
And so Billy is starting his side company, but he's working full-time at Bonfield. And again, very little oversight. Mm-hmm. He um, oversaw the sites. And Bonfield completely. was pretty small. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty small. Um, and so he would get shipments of lumber and he was the one who would account for them. He was the one who would say if they were in good condition or not. He even had the authority to say that materials were stolen and order replacements and nobody verified it. Mm. So as his business, his side business struggled, he saw this authority that he had at Bonfield as a way to balance out the downfalls of his company. Mm -hmm. So he started taking lumber, taking tools, and just writing down that they were damaged or stolen and then ordering more on Bonfield's dime. And using their credit card. Yep. Yeah, at he the had local a, hardware. Store. Yeah, he had a company credit card. So he would go to the local hardware store near where his side company was building houses, mm-hmm. not where Bonfield was. And he would buy tools for his side company and take them over to their sites. And that was one of the things the investigator was able to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the Bonfield owners knew about Billy's side company at all until the end? I don't think so, personally. And from the investigator's point of view, the case author, she briefly mentions that the owners were not very involved Mm -hmm. in operations. They were more of – the way she put it nicely was that they trust their employees. Mm -hmm. But then toward the end, it was also – they were more detached. Mm -hmm. So they used trust to kind of um, compensate for their Mm -hmm. lack of involvement. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think that they were aware that Billy had a side business. I don't know that they even realized there was an issue with any of his projects. Yeah. Again, we kind of see the same red flags with Uh little oversight. Yep. No controls, really. Yeah. Um, what could they have done differently? Internal controls. Absolutely. Step one is don't give any one employee the power to accept shipments, to verify shipments, and to be the one to say if they need to be reordered or replaced. Um, yeah, having people check his credit card statements would have been a good control. But also, unlike the first case, I think Billy showed some different red flags also in Mm -hmm. his ambition and his desire to get his side business going and to Mm -hmm. get his name out there and to be successful on his own. So I think those behavioral red flags could have also been looked for internally. Do you think that his – and I don't know if the author ever conveyed this to you – that his associates knew what was going on, his business partners? Oh, his business partners absolutely knew that he was, yeah, taking lumber from Bonfield. In fact, um, one of his business partners was the sales rep at the lumber company that would deliver lumber to Bonfield. Mm -hmm. And then Billy would work with him to say, oh, this order was damaged. Let's get a new shipment. So, yeah, one of his business partners was absolutely involved in it. The other one was more of the high-level detach. So he might not have, but – But I would bet that he probably knew as well. Yeah. So with both of these cases, with Billy and with Peter, what do you think are some of the ways that owners Mm -hmm. can stay more in tune or more in touch with their employees to be able to even pick up on some of these 
red flag, behavioral red flags yeah. when you're so detached? I think in the case of both Billy and I would say probably more Fred in mm-hmm. the first case, with both of them, it seems like their supervisors weren't even around involved at yeah. all or weren't even – they didn't even it seems like they didn't even consider looking for behavioral flags in any of their employees because Fred was all alone in an evidence cage. Um I think it would have been pretty obvious to anyone who even asked him how he was feeling about his yeah. career change that there were some issues there. It just seems like nobody even asked or thought to consider that as a possible sign of things to come. Mm-hmm. And with Billy I definitely think same thing applies. The owners seemed very detached and they didn't really um, work closely with employees on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis. They didn't see how their employees were, what situations they were in, how they were adapting to them. But with his case, there was one point where the internal auditor interviewed some of his colleagues mm-hmm. and one of the construction workers on the site that he oversaw did say, I, I thought it was weird, like all these shipments were damaged or missing, but then we would never see them go. When they were damaged, we wouldn't actually see if they were damaged mm-hmm. or not. And that Billy worked really weird hours and mm-hmm. sometimes would come in really late, but then he'd stay really late when everyone left to do his paperwork. So I think with Billy, there were some people who, yeah. if management had talk to them could have yeah yeah, could have said well yeah maybe there is something weird going on here yeah so I think even just having it on the radar for executives Mm -hmm. is something to yeah I think and having something in place like a routine yeah 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 thank you for joining us today and talking to us about a couple of these cases I know we hear over and over again how much people love case studies yes um, because you can actually see it from beginning to end mm-hmm. and you can take away what could have been done, what should have been done. Yep. Um, and also what you can include in your own examinations. Thank you all for listening today. This is Mandy Moody signing off and we will come back and visit with you next month. And you can find more podcasts at acfe.com slash podcast and be sure to check it out because we've actually added some new archives.